0: You are listening to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice, your number one stop for film talk, the sweet sound of classic rock, and the best special guests on college radio. I'm your host, Random Allen, here to lead you through the madness of your week with some laughs, truth, and those little bits of useless trivia to annoy your friends with. This week on the show, we're talking about strange monoliths, AI art. McCartney 3. And for our final segment, we are joined by a famous TV writer and the co creator of the CBS show Blood and Treasure, Steven Skaya. Enjoy Layla by Derek and the Dominoes, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Reels and Riffs. We always enjoy a little Eric Clapton to start out that afternoon grind. Eric Clapton is a master with the guitar and he stands out in almost any group that he's in. I'm just now really starting to get into Cream, Derek and the Dominoes, and Clapton's other work, and I hope to spotlight it on the show at some point. Well, it's a new year, new season, and new show. Reels and Riffs is back with some changes. For our new main segment, true to our name, each week we'll be doing a deep dive on a popular movie or album. Additionally, we'll have interviews, live performances, and more. We've got a great show for you today, folks. But first, we'll be bringing back a much-beloved segment to start us off. Back with popular demand, weird news around the world! Welcome back to Weird News Around the World, where we look at the odd, the unusual, and the just downright strange things that happen around this big blue planet of ours. Our first story is a strange bookend to the already bizarre year that was 2020. They began to appear out of nowhere all over the world. Without warning, these strange 10 to 12 feet monoliths began to pop up in different places. The first one showed up in the Utah desert on November 18th and then disappeared without warning. Then on the very same day, another monolith appeared in Romania and disappeared a week later. Similar monoliths continued to pop up in places like California and New Mexico in December, only to disappear or be taken down within the following days. No one knows where these monoliths came from or their purpose. One of the strangest things about the Utah monoliths is that, and it was in the middle of a remote desert canyon, deeply stuck in the ground. These monoliths are entirely solid metal with no markings and an ominous glow. Could it be aliens? (sighs) I'll be honest, they could have picked a better year to come down than 2020. Maybe they have a coronavirus cure, who knows. Sadly, it almost certainly isn't aliens. It appears to be some kind of art stunt. It is true we have no idea who's doing it, but whoever is doing it is obviously a big fan of Stanley Kubrick. For those who don't know and haven't seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, if you haven't, you definitely should go take out two and a half hours of your time to go watch it. The plot revolves around strange monoliths, that were placed around the Earth and the moon by these, like, extraterrestrial aliens who are trying to help, like, humankind's evolution. You've got bone clubs, nuclear space stations, killer AI, and the an even more killer classical soundtrack. And a very trippy Stargate scene, and one of the most, like, and the movie ends off with one of the most analyzed and confusing endings of all time. It's great. It's not for everybody. 2001 is definitely not for everybody. But... It really spearheaded the the practical effects boom. Like it was one of the best looking movies to come out in the last fifty years. Like if you watched it, you would think that they made the movie with modern day effects because of how close Kubrick got the space effects. Like just simple things like zero gravity or just like spaceships docking and all this stuff. It looked real, and it still looks pretty good even today. It's impressive. But so coming back to the monoliths. People don't know what to make of these monoliths, with the exception of the California monoliths, which were claimed by local artists. Ideals range from them being art stunts to potentially a marketing stunt for the show Westworld, which I've heard nothing but good things about. A very unfortunate incident happened to the California monolith where it was taken down and dragged off the mountain by a group of angry Trump supporters who chanted, Christ is the king in this country, and we don't want illegal aliens from Mexico or outer space, and other similar slogans before tearing it down and replacing it with a giant cross, which was later taken down itself. I'm not going to get political this time, but without making any more comments, this is why we can't have nice things. Most of the other monoliths were removed or taken down by local authorities, but who knows, we might see some more in 2021. It's a very strange story, but even if it was a marketing stunt, it's interesting that somebody would go through all this trouble. I think it's pretty cool that they went this extra mile to tribute one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time. Our next story is a tad bit insane, and it's a pretty good argument for not feeding the wildlife around your home. We love wild animal stories here on Reels and Riffs. We all know squirrels. Some of us feed them, some of us have this uneasy ceasefire. It's kind of like that episode of Seinfeld. We let the squirrels rob our bird feeders in exchange to get out of the ways of our cars. It's the rule. Well, this squirrel decided he wanted more food and he was willing to stab somebody to get it. To cut to the chase, this Canadian woman woke up to a squirrel carrying around a knife in her yard. Obviously, that's a little bit more incentive to fill up the squirrel's bird feeder. Obviously, the squirrel found the knife somewhere and started carrying it around, but I'll be honest, it's pretty intimidating. You wake up and the squirrels are carrying knives. The world would be complete chaos, dogs and cats living together, in mass hysteria. I mean, 2020 already had killer hornets, COVID, and giant wildfires. This year, we have knife-wielding squirrels. What's next? could be like the next sharknado type movie you know one of those really crappy b movies that just is entirely sold on the title alone and get like an a-list actor to be in it like snakes on a plane why can't we have squirrels with knives i think maybe you get dwayne the rot johnson into this movie you get like a huge budget maybe have it directed by Nicolas cage and you could have a giant dumpster fire but it would be an enjoyable dumpster fire Luckily, nobody was harmed this time, but the year's still young and knife-wielding squirrels could be on the loose. Be careful out there. For our final story, we go to Australia. And as a fair warning before I start, like, talking, if you have a fear of fighters, do not listen to this part of the episode. So Australians is already known for its terrifying wildlife. But you would think, like, most of that wildlife, most of that terrifying wildlife is outdoors, and away from your house. Not so anymore. This mother just happened to be checking in on her daughter, and then she realized that her daughter's room was infested with spiders over 70. She looked up in one corner of the room and there were spiders pouring out of a hole. She looked up in the other corner, there were more spiders pouring out of the hole. And there are those hairy huntsman spiders. Kind of like mini tarantulas. And then so, her daughter had told her a few times earlier in the week that, hey, there's a lot of spiders in my room. And yeah, maybe if it was like one or two or three, that'd be more normal, more acceptable. You wouldn't panic as much. But she comes in and there's over 70. This is kind of like that horror movie where the kids already know like something's going on in the house and they're all scared and the parents like no 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 it's fine it's fine it's just like it's just the wind or you know those creepy voices up in the attic i'm sure that they're you know just like rats or something where it's one of those horror movies where the parents are entirely oblivious this daughter had been trying to tell her mom about the spider infestation for a long time <laughs> and until it got to the point where they were literally pouring out of the ceiling. That is terrifying. I'm not even afraid of spiders. Spiders can be, like, helpful. They usually, they'll, they won't they will bite you. They just kind of like to be left alone. But when you got over 70, and maybe there's even more in the walls, as scary a thought as that is, you know you need to call some kind of exterminator or perhaps just move at that point. Move far away from Australia the mother kind of went to Twitter and then like, like started taking video of this insanity that was going on in her house. And she was pondering out loud. Maybe they should burn down the house. It definitely feels like one of those horror movies. One of the scariest things about these spiders is that as big as they are, and they're about the size of most like common house spiders. These are just baby spiders and they can get significantly bigger. Now, According to the mom, luckily the infestation has kind of disappeared, the spiders, like, migrated away, hopefully, and her, like, daughter is now sleeping in her bed. But I don't know if I would want to sleep in the same room as, like, where hundreds of spiders are literally crawling out of the walls. That's just me. So I think the moral of the story is don't be those oblivious horror movie parents. If your daughter comes up to you and says, Hey mommy, there's my like room is entirely infested with spiders, go up and check. I mean, she could be lying, you never know. She it could be like part of her imagination, but make sure just like be careful and make sure. That way you don't have to burn down your whole house with a flamethrower to get rid of all these giant spiders that are currently pouring out of your walls. This is a PSA from Reels and Riffs. Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9 will be taking a short little commercial break. When we return, we are going to be delving into Paul McCartney's newest album, McCartney 3. Now enjoy what I consider to be the spotlight track of the album and the first track of the album, Long-Tailed Winterbird, and we'll be right back, folks. Welcome back to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9 or Wright State FM, your number one show for music and movies on college radio. Let's get right into talking about Paul McCartney's newest record, McCartney 3. It's Paul's first number one album in a few decades. Paul has been consistently putting out solo work over the years, including an Egypt station back in 2018. But this is the first album of his to break number one on the Billboard charts in a while, which I think is really impressive for somebody like Paul, who's such an amazing musician, to still be able to put out a number one album when he's 78. I think among some people, there's always this prevailing opinion that musicians are always chasing after their shadow. They can never be as good as they were back when they were younger. While there may be some truth to that, I think Paul is really breaking the mold and showing that even though I'm 78, even though like I haven't had a number one album in a while, I can still break the Billboard charts and I can still like deliver that kind of quality. One of the interesting things about McCartney 3 is that it started entirely by accident. Essentially, Paul was kind of playing around with some of his unfinished songs, and the first track, Long-Tailed Winterbird, was being developed for a short film. But since the pandemic rolled around and nobody was going out really anywhere... And Paul just happened to have a fully functional, professional studio built into his house, because of course, he's Paul McCartney, he would. He decided to take a lot of these unfinished tracks that he'd been playing with, including some extra stuff from some of his other albums like Egypt Station, and finally finish them and turn them into what we have now, McCartney 3. It's similar to what happened with McCartney 2, where the whole like album kind of came together by accident. But what a happy accident it is. I think the best word that I would use to describe Paul McCartney in general would definitely be versatile. He's mastered so many different instruments, and he's filled in for so many different roles, it's very impressive. I mean, I can't even really count them all. You've got bass, piano, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, drums, trumpet, double bass, even more than that probably. You can really see those talents on the first track of the album, which I played for you before the break, "Long tailed Winterbird. It has this really addicting acoustic guitar riff, and it feels like it could stand out as a single all its own. It's simple, it's a simple repeating riff, but it's very distinctive. It feels And it feels like it's unique because there's not a lot of acoustic guitar in modern rock. There's acoustic guitar all over country, but I feel like a lot of modern rock songs don't really use it very much. And that's kind of sad because the Beatles use the acoustic guitar to very great success for a lot of their White Album work. I feel like it's a very underutilized instrument. And you can really see, like, Paul's skill as, like, at all these different instruments that he's playing in this first track. long tailed Winterbird is a very standout track and a good opener to his album and i will argue later on that it feels kind of like the album deflates somewhat as it goes on because it had such a good opening track in regards to bass specifically paul is really the person responsible for bringing the bass player or like to the forefront of bands usually in most bands the bass player is probably the least known member and that's super unfortunate Heck, I saw a whole Led Zeppelin documentary where they didn't even mention John Paul Jones once. You could have forgotten that he was even part of the band. Paul really took the bass and made it his own, but he's also so skilled at all these other instruments, other than bass and piano. So, coming off of Long-Tailed Winterbird, we have another track called Find My Way, which I'm going to play a bit for you right now. It's very fast-moving, electric guitar. It kind of feels like a very fast-paced pop song that you would see in a lot of the early Beatles work. Catchy and simple. Like, we can work it out. There are two different drum and bass tracks layered with guitar loops. Apparently, Paul had a lot of fun recording in this track, and you can definitely tell by the enthusiasm in his voice. This shows up Paul as the one-man band he is.
1: Well, I can find my way. Left and right Because we never close I'm open day and night I know my way around I walk towards the light I'm open round the clock I don't get lost at night You never used to be Afraid of days like
2: these. But now you're overwhelmed By your anxiety
1: I can find my way, I know my left from right Because we never close, I'm open day and night
0: As you can tell from that little snippet, Find My Way is a very catchy track that I think would kind of fall on the same lines as a lot of the Beatles' early single work, but in a good way, where it's simple, but it's memorable. Moving down the album's track list, we come to another very memorable song to me, Laboratory Lil. the title alone, it might sound like a certain other song that many fans of Abbey Road know very well. It might sound a little bit like... Yes, I feel like this is an intentional callback to Paul and Theme Pam. Even though that was John's song, aside from just the alliteration of the name, I feel like Paul made this song with kind of the intention of making a finished version of Paul and Theme Pam. Because as a lot of people know, Paul and Theme Pam started out as essentially an unfinished Escher demo when they were working on the White Album. And when they made it as part of the Abbey Road Melody... John was kind of happy because he's like, now I don't have to finish the song. I think it's kind of impressive Paul went back and turned that ideal into a full song because the first time I heard Paul of Theme Pam was essentially out of context. It was out of the melody. I was just going through, it was years and years ago, and I was going through the tracks on the road, and I'm like, oh, here's Paul and Theme Pam. I'll listen to it on its own. And it really doesn't work well as its own song as it is. It really fits into the melody well because it kind of leads directly into the next track. But what Paul has done here is that with Laboratory Lil, he took that ideal and he kind of crystallized it into his own standalone song. And I like that he made that pretty obvious callback to one of their classic Abbey Road tracks. So the next song I want to spotlight is going towards the end. It's called Slide In. The thing about Slide In is it has this very distinctive, heavy hard rock riff. It's probably the the heaviest track on the album. The opening chords to me are very reminiscent to something like Hey Bulldog, where it's very hard rock song, kind of a departure from the rest of the album, in a similar way to how like the Beatles didn't make a lot of like hard rock songs, aside from something like Hey Bulldog or Helter Skelter. It stands out from the rest of the tracks because of this very gritty sound, and I think you guys will like it. The interesting thing about this track is it was actually made during a jam session while Paul was working on Egypt Station with a few of the other band members, and you can it definitely has that really kind of improvised feel. But edit in a song in the middle of a live concert to make it sound better. I think the vocals really reflect that too. Sound like Paul's vocals in Oh Darling on Abbey Road, where. His goal with those was to make it sound like he had been, like, seen in live at a concert. And you really get that edge to his voice that I think works really well in In. So we're moving on to the last two tracks of the album. And this next one is called Deep Down. And it's another track that really shows up Paul as a one-man band. The thing about Paul that a lot of people don't know is that he is a really good drummer, He's no Ringo, but he has had some standout tracks on Beatles songs that you probably didn't know that he played on, such as back in the USSR. Because at the time, when they were recording back in the USSR, Ringo had left the group, so Paul was the drummer on there. He was also the drummer on The Ballad of John and Yoko. The thing about Paul is that, as I was saying earlier, he's very good at being a multi-instrumentalist. And even though we might not think of him as a drummer... I think Paul's drumming really shines through on this track in conjunction with his work with the Moog synthesizer, which is a Beatles staple that kind of combines together to give you this really low bluesy rough track that I think he's going for. Also, I like the effects that they use on Paul's voice. It gives it a nice edge. Synthesizers may be a bit overused nowadays, but if they're used in the right hand, such as Paul McCartney himself, I think you can still get pretty good tracks, as we just saw with that track Deep Down. Now, finally, for the last track, it has a bit of a callback to Long-Tailed Winterbird. It's called Winterbird slash When Winter Comes. So the first section feels a lot like a reprise of the first track. And apparently, this was originally recorded and mixed down with the help of George Martin back in the 90s. Paul's been trying to get the second half, When Winter Comes, released in various formats for the past while. And it's a very common song to end the record.
1: Fix the fence by the acre plot Two young foxes have been nosing around The lambs and the chickens won't feel safe Until it's done I must dig a drain by the carrot patch The whole crop spoils if it gets too damp And where will we be with an empty store When winter comes? winter comes and food is scarce we'll want our toes to stay indoors
0: Overall, I think that McCartney 3 is a great album and well-deserving of that number one spot on the Billboard charts. It shows that Paul McCartney can still be an influential and amazing musician even in today's market. And it shows that one of the defining voices of like the early 60s, 70s, and 80s has still got it. I, part of the reason why I only played bits of these tracks is because I want all of you to go out, out either listen to McCartney on Spotify, or heck, buy the record, buy the CD, and give Paul McCartney all that love and support that he truly deserves, still being one of the greatest musicians of our time. When Reels and Riffs returns, we are going to be joined by a very special guest, TV writer and co-creator of the CBS show Blood and Treasure, Steven Skaya. You are listening to WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice. And Reels and Riffs will be right back after this short little commercial break. Welcome back to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9 FM. For our final segment, one on one, we are joined by a very special guest. He is a famous writer, producer, director, comic book writer, and occasional actor who has contributed to many fan favorite hits, such as Judge and Amy, Warehouse 13, Limitless, Charlie's Angels, and more. But he's probably best known currently as the co creator, writer, and producer of the current CBS adventure show Blood and Treasure. Steven Sky, everybody, how are you today?
3: I'm good. Good. It's uh, it's fun to be with you.
0: It's fun to have you on the show. So let's start out strong. You studied film at Emerson College before you broke into the industry. In what True. ways did your educational background in film benefit your later work as a director and writer for TV? Okay. And what mentors or role models had a positive impact on you during your time at university?
3: You know, it's it's funny that um, that you ask because I always. When people always ask, like, "What was what was college like?" I don't remember the classes as well as I remember the experience of it because Emerson was a very hands-on school. So you would go and you would take your classes, but really, where the camaraderie happened and where you learned and honed your craft was in extracurriculars. So Emerson had a radio station, two radio stations, a TV station, a film club, um, a second film club, and everyone was always working on projects, and so. What I loved about Emerson was not only did I make friends that I still work with to this day, I also got to work on a lot of different things where I got to taste a lot of the different parts of the business to make sure I was finding the the, the part of the business that would work best for me. And I think that um, much like Wright State, which I know has a really great film program, to me, the fun part is doing it. It's not about just learning it. And so... To me, the mentors that I remember the best were the students that I went to school with who were always pulling people on a Saturday or a Sunday to go um, either down into the city or out to the Cape to go shoot this one piece or jump on this boat and go uh, research this thing. And so everyone always kept everyone else very busy in college and that's one of the things I liked best about it. When I think back on it, like it was one of the best times of my life because I, I never sat still.
0: So it sounds like it wasn't like the ed- the actual like lessons in education that really stuck with you. It was just the experiences that you kind of forged through your like different friends and different
3: associates at the college. Yeah, and which isn't to say the classes weren't interesting. I mean, there's still things to this day that I thought were really useful where, you know, not only the history classes like the, um, you know, the history of the studio system that we took at Emerson, but also um, a... A class I remember really well was called Novel into Film, and it was all about how, to, how adaptations had been done and how to do them. And to be honest, I mean that's so much of the business now is adapting things. And so those are lessons that I still take with me every day. Whenever I look at a project or read a book or watch a, a movie to adapt, um, it's the things I learned in that class that I'm, I'm the fundamentals I'm bringing to the project.
0: Interesting. So coming back to scripts. I'm curious about what your typical creative process for developing scripts for the shows that you've worked on, and in what ways do you work with like, the directors or the producers to bring your ideals to the screen?
3: Well, I think the, the most important thing is, for a, a script, knowing these days how long it takes to get something made, you've really got to love not just the idea but the world, and you've got to want to be able to spend a couple years with it and have it not lose interest. And be able to keep the sort of passion for the idea alive, as it as it will, you know, no doubt go through multiple, multiple changes, because of the needs of whatever the studio is or the um, the director you hire or the actor you bring on board. It's like the the script is always just the blueprint, and so you've got to be you've got to be able to be flexible, but still know at the core what the what your story is about, but also maintain that sort of love and interest in it that as people start taking their wax out of it as they go down the line. You never lose sight of what is important to you, and, and ultimately what makes a successful story is that passion combined with the opportunity to really put together a good show.
0: So it sounds so, like you really have to like, like the ideal and kind of like continue to like it beyond just kind of that initial like um, reaction to it.
3: Exactly, because so much of the, so these days so much of the idea is based on either, like we were talking about, um, they call it IP, uh, intellectual property. So it's based on a a book or a movie or a video game or something. If it's not something you're interested in, it's gonna be really hard to be successful with it. Um, And if it's an an original idea, it's gotta be an idea that you wanna spend the time with because everyone's gonna always be testing you, asking you questions, challenging your, your opinions and assumptions and ideas. And so you really wanna know it backwards and forwards better than anybody else. So you can give great answers that help make the story better.
0: You have to be really passionate about it for it Mm -hmm. actually to turn out to be like a good property in the end. Exactly. So coming to your most recent project, Blood and Treasure, which you co-created with your frequent collaborator, Matthew Felderman, and you currently act as both writer, producer, and probably more. When did you and Matthew initially conceive the basic ideal for the show, and what struggles
3: did you face in getting the show greenlit? So here's a great example of, you gotta love it a lot. <laughs> you gotta love the idea a lot. This started, um, when Matt and I started writing together, we had a shared love of treasure hunter stories. And so I think we sold our first treasure hunter story, um, we, were, we were we were baby writers, so it was probably a solid 15 years ago. And we, we, we had a little niche for ourselves where we were the guys that were really good at the treasure hunter story. And for whatever reason, um, those, those either scripts we sold or, or stories we were pitching never really went anywhere until we, we kind of caught up with the idea, uh, I think it would have been, let's see, the end of 2016 or the summer of 2016, so four years ago, um, where the idea was we had learned that ISIS at that time was funding their terrorism with blood antiquities, so they would roll into a city and you'd see on the news them blowing up ancient treasures. Before they blew anything up, they'd they'd bring out their saws, they'd cut it all down and sell it to oligarchs for a gazillion dollars and use that money to fund their extremism. And when we heard about that, we finally figured out, I see the thing we've been missing all along, which is there were no stakes to treasure hunting. I mean, Raiders of Lost Ark has great stakes, you got to get the art before the Nazis do, or else they'll take over the world. But in a more modern day version of it, it's really hard to sell the importance of art antiquities to an audience who is used to, um, the world ending either by Death Star or, um, terrorist bomb plot. (laughs) And so it was a really great way to get into that story. And so we probably started that as a, as one version of that story in 2016. It didn't, it didn't go as a um, as sort of like a regular fall CBS procedural, but the executives at CBS saw the value in the idea and they offered us the chance to redevelop it as a summer series, which means, instead of them greenlighting just one pilot, if the show got greenlit, they'd greenlit, greenlight all 13 episodes at once and we'd make the entire show, which was, it, at the moment, it felt like a real bummer to kind of go back to square one, but in the end, it turned out to be the best thing that happens to us because The ability to make 13 episodes at once, knowing you're going to make them, gave us the ability to really uh, block shoot and gave us the chance to travel the world. And I think that's one of the best parts of that show is we are a we're a we're a vacation for folks who might not otherwise get to take a vacation.
0: That's actually one of the strongest parts from watching the first few episodes that really like came through to me, like the beautiful locales that you guys film in.
3: Yeah, and, and that's that's not by coincidence. It, re- it really is that every season where the last two seasons starts with um, me, a production designer and a producer, getting on the road and traveling to the places in the world where we're thinking of shooting that year. So um, first season was uh, a more of a Middle Eastern, Mediterranean story. So we went to Italy and scouted Southern Italy and Morocco and kind of the places that would du- that would double well for dusty Middle East <clears throat> knowing that Montreal was going to be our hub and Montreal has the benefit of being both uh, western looking but also European um, in its architecture so it, it covered the basis for sort of northern and central Europe um, and then second season uh, we go on uh, more of a an eastern, eastern block slash uh, southeast Asian adventure so that was a, a trip to southeast Asia to scout locations there to find the great, the great spots for us
0: so it sounds like the set-in choice kind of influenced how you guys developed
3: the plot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and vice versa. Because when you find out, when you go to a place, as the, as the writing was happening in the writer's room, I got to go take a trip uh, for two weeks to Thailand and see things that were like, wow, this is really amazing. They have This thing that I'd never, we, none of us had ever heard of before, we were, I was able to bring it back to the room and make it part of the story.
0: I was wondering what were some of the biggest difficulties that you guys face while filming on location?
3: Uh, <laughs> I mean, you'd be surprised, but also um, it, you know it's just it's, I think it's just tough shooting at location anywhere. I think we had as many tough days in Montreal, which basically is like considered that a home game um, as any of our away games because in Montreal in the wintertime it is cold. it is dangerously cold and you need to be shooting in the wintertime in the snow and that presents technical challenges but then also you know this past season in thailand we were on a on the 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 top of a 40-story skyscraper in bangkok on a helicopter pad that was all concrete and steel um at three o'clock in the afternoon on the hottest day of the year and that presents its own challenges and it's really interesting to see how when you get past the The sort of like the glamour of movie making, how everything becomes the same no matter where you are. The problems are always the same not enough time, uh, not enough light, not enough money. (laughs) And uh, when you're working with a really good local production crew, they can help you navigate all the things you think would be problems, like visas or the peculiarities of a location. Because lots of times you have uh, what one of our directors calls cinematic immunity, where you get to go places and do things and skip the velvet rope. That other people would never get to do, and that really gives you the opportunity to show some really cool stuff on TV that you wouldn't normally get to see.
0: So it sounds like, like wherever you are, you're going to face like kind of similar problems, but just being able to like get there and like um, kind of manage those problems
3: is the most important thing. Yeah, and, and you'd be you you might be surprised to know that the crews in bangkok were better than the crews in new york that i worked with you know what i mean like everyone every place you go they're craftsmen and they're artists and they know how to make the best version of the product and that's that's the thing that i love is like finding those people no matter where you are in the world and finding that common bond which is cinema and being able to make it together
0: it definitely sounds like an industry where you would meet like all different kinds of people who like kind of share your passion for like cinema and like writing scripts and doing all these different behind the scenes things for
3: like TV shows and movies. Yes, absolutely, and, and also it helps too when you are in a place where um, let's say the person in charge happens to like movies a lot or TV shows and you get to have certain problems go away. I, I remember uh, first season we needed a, a cargo plane for um, an episode, one of the first few episodes of the show, um, and I believe the cargo plane was supposed to be, like, story-wise, it was going from Zurich to Rome, um, and we were a lot of trouble finding it. We couldn't find one, it was a C-130 we needed. Couldn't find it in, in North America, because um, the United States government couldn't help us in Canada, and the Canadian government wasn't interested in helping us, and we had trouble finding it in Italy because the Italians don't actually use that type of plane. And so we were were having a lot of trouble finding it until we went scouting in Morocco. And one of our days, uh, uh, one of our dinners after scouting in Morocco, I was having dinner with our producer director, our our executive, one of our executive producers, and then the local production team that we'd hired to help us in Morocco. And I was just sort of having a a conversation about how frustrating it was that we couldn't have found that C-130 in Italy. And one of the guys, was like, oh, what's what's the problem? And I explained the situation, and he, he said, okay, <clears throat> maybe I can help you. And he pulled out his phone, dialed the number, we kept talking about whatever we kept talking about, and at a certain point he stopped and he goes, oh, sorry to interrupt, um, how's Thursday? And we're like, Thursday for what? He's like, oh, um, well, I'm on with the king, and he said you can have one of the C-130s. <laughs> um, we just gotta go to the air base, and uh, it, it's Thursday okay to go pick out a C-130 for you guys? Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, perfect and uh and sure enough we went the you know that day we we there were they're all lined up on the tarmac the general who showed us in walked us right past security said point at the one you want it'll be there on whatever day it was november 3rd and you can you guys can shoot with it all day
0: sounds like it's and all it was, who you know
3: <laughs> and it was just because the king really loves movies and
0: tv oh wow so final two questions, but what was the most difficult moment of your career and how did you get through it?
2: This,
3: this last year with the pandemic has been really, really difficult. Um, we were in the middle of shooting our season. It was really, imp- we were in Thailand when everything really got, got hot um, in the world. And it was really difficult not being able to finish, but then knowing that we needed to finish the show but not knowing how or when or even where in the world we would be able to do that again. And so the springtime was a lot of time spent watching what we had, rewriting the scripts that we hadn't finished yet uh, or the pieces of scripts and figuring out a game plan so that when we did get back up into production, we were able to do everything we were missing, um, including pieces from other parts of the world, knowing that we only had one place we could go and do it. And that was Italy. And so Italy had to double for a lot of different things, including Southeast Asia. And that was probably the most challenging thing I've ever dealt with, which is, at no point can, can the answer be, we can't do it. It's gotta be, okay, how do we do this? And it, and it really became to me a, a months long personification of one of my favorite scenes in a movie. Um, in the 13, when they have the, um, the two different canisters for the, um, uh, for the, the airflow. And they've got the square one and the round one. And they say, we've got to make this one fit into this one using only this. And they point to the table and it's all the pieces of things that are inside the capsule. And to me, that's what that entire spring became about.
0: You got to make the impossible possible. You got to make it work mm-hmm. somehow.
3: Yep, no is not an answer.
0: Final question. What is the proudest moment of your career and why?
3: That's a great question. I think if I can bring this thing in for a landing this season, that'll be it.
0: Oh, season two of Blend Treasure?
3: Yeah. Yep. With all the challenges and everything. I think that'll be a that'll be a really satisfying moment when it finally gets on TV.
0: Just listening to you, it it definitely I'm getting across how much of a Herculean task it is to just like get a show made. So just like having it on the air and having like the fans being able to watch it will be like probably really um, like a really moment of pride that you got that made.
2: Absolutely, and, and the,
3: the, the hundreds of people on multiple continents all over the world that all contributed to it. I mean, like it's been going on so long now that, that, that we've lost people, we've added people, people, babies have been born. It's like, it really has become this thing, um, this sort of like worldwide uh, family and it's been a great experience. So bringing it home is, is, is part of that.
0: I think that's a great note to end on. I wanna thank you so much for being on the show, Stephen. It's been great having you here. It's been an honor having you here. Do you have any part in words for our audience?
3: Yes, you can do it. I uh especially for uh for anybody that's that's listening there in in, in Southwest Ohio, it's like I, I was I was just a kid who watched too many movies and didn't much care for math and didn't really want to become an accountant or a dentist. And I was like, you know, I'd like to make movies someday and uh turns out you can do it i didn't know anybody i'm not related to anybody just a lot of hard work and preparation and that's all luck is Is hard work is is luck is just preparation meeting opportunity
0: everybody watch blood and treasure on cbs and cbs all access and stay tuned for season two in production right now that's our show folks good night